0: Hello, this is Dr. Frank Dowling, Secretary of the Medical Society of the State of New York. I'm a physician who is board certified in addiction and psychiatric medicine. I've been involved in Misny's Veterans Matters Programs and Planning Committee since its inception in 2015. I'm joined today by retired U.S. Air Force New York Air National Guard Chief Master Sergeant Marcel Leese, and retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Lance Allen Wang. We will be discussing military culture in regards to what physicians need to know to be able to better treat veteran patients. Lance, could you please explain some of the ways that military culture might affect a veteran patient that vary from a civilian patient?
1: Well, Dr. Dowling, thank you for having us, first of all, and thank you on behalf of our veterans for the hard work that you and your team have put into understanding and treating the veteran community. Military culture has a huge impact on the veteran patient in ways which will impact how you approach and communicate with them and how they might respond. I guess the first thing is, to start with, they come from a very hierarchical organization. What might seem like merely a title to someone who's untrained, like a private sergeant, lieutenant, general, it represents they sit in the hierarchy. So to use a very simplistic example, an enlisted private, you'd consider the same almost as a blue-collar worker. A non-commissioned officer, which you'll hear the title sergeant or petty officer in the Navy, is very much like your shop foreman. And officers are kind of like your white-collar managers. But regardless of their rank, all need to be considered professionals. So one might be low in rank, but they're given responsibilities that might go to a higher paid civilian. Like, for instance, uh, I personally saw some lower enlisted soldiers, a private first class a corporal. I saw them doing network administration when I was in the army. On the outside, you're looking at a six-figure salary. In the military, it's not quite that much at all. So the point I'm trying to make there is never assume that, that lower enlisted would be seen as merely laborers, Because there is a sense of pride, and they are all considered professionals, both through training and the way they're treated. I myself spent six years as an enlisted man before I was sent off to officer candidate school. I remember one joke very well. A second lieutenant is your normal entry level rank for your officers. And I remember the joke was, what's the difference between a private first class and a second lieutenant? And of course, the punchline was, well, the private first class has actually been promoted. So there's a hierarchy there, and it's very much part of the culture. Another part is their professional ethic. The military has what I personally call a a institutional sense of accountability. In other words, they're trained about, they're inculcated with their organization's values from the moment they join. Things like selfless service and loyalty given and returned. Things like they don't let the team down. They don't leave a buddy behind. They're concerned about their reputation, their team's reputation. Even when the military does something wrong, they know it's wrong. Now, this is not always the case on the civilian side, and to leave a world where those values are commonplace and expected can be a huge shock. I left the military after 21 years in 2009, and I still can't get used to what I see as an absence of accountability in the civilian world. Now, one thing I want to point out, and it's especially in our post-9-11 conflicts, is there's been a tremendous amount of reliance on our citizen soldiers, your National Guardsmen and your reservists. There, too, the culture is huge. It has a huge impact. For our active duty soldiers who wear the uniform every day, some have, believe it or not, a sheltered, or maybe a better word is sequestered, existence. Some of them live on a military base. They've not had to interact with the outside world a lot of the time. They count on other military families for support. And they're also used to getting uprooted every few years. Your reservists, your guardsmen, they train a weekend a month and a couple of weeks a year. But when the nation calls them to get them sent into harm's way for a year, year and a half at a time, it's a severe shock in a lot of cases. Because when they enter active duty, they carry those same stressors and challenges from their civilian life and have to deal with them on top of the more immediate challenges like mission completion and survival. So, While I call them twice the citizen, it sometimes means twice the stressors, and some of our reservists have made this transition three, four, five times since 9-11. With that background, so very different than your average American, comes its own vernacular. Military speech is this pastiche of technical terms and acronyms and swear words and graveyard humor and obscure historical references. And these also vary with the particular branch of service type of unit and military skill that the service member has. And this is a challenge for a treating physician in a lot of ways because it's often like trying to understand a foreign language because, in fact, it is. On top of all this, now we throw the stressors that are unique to the military, especially the military's signature defining stressor, the physical and psychological effects of life in a war zone and to the military family that knows of a possible job-related death or disfigurement as part of the bargain that their parents made when they joined the military. And of course, there's the military and societal stigma of combat and operational stress, commonly known now as PTSD. And we also need to keep one aspect of traumatic stress in mind, which is there's not only PTSD, there's also something we call post-traumatic growth. We can't just ask the leading question, how did deployment to war hurt you? We neglect to ask what did you learn about yourself? Me personally spending a year in Iraq as an infantry officer was not a great thing, but I'll say everything I took home in my head was not awful. I grew personally spiritually while I was there. I know myself better. I gained perspective on what was important and what was not important, but it's also equally important for someone returning from war to understand how all the skills and coping mechanisms we use in combat are not necessarily constructive at home. Driving rapidly in the middle of the road to avoid a roadside ambush is very helpful when you're riding on Route Irish between Baghdad Airport and the Green Zone, but it's not as effective, and it's illegal and dangerous, by the way, if you're doing it on New York Route 7. Hypervigilance keeps you alive in combat. It's also exhausting emotionally and physically and maladaptive at home. One other thing I want to bring up is with regards to female service members who are so important to our military strength. The military maintains its professional values, but as I said before, not all live up to them. And perhaps this is most evident in military sexual trauma. The victims, who are primarily but not exclusively women, have to deal not only with this trauma, but also the betrayal of the values that they and the perpetrators swore to uphold from day one in the service. So as you can see, Dr. Dowling, it's a very, very different culture than 99% of the public who is not serving at a given time has to deal with.
0: Thank you, Lance, for sharing those thoughts. I think that's very helpful for a physician to keep in mind if they want to forge an alliance with a veteran and try to help them. Marcel, can you describe a few of the resources that are available to improve a physician's ability to fully treat veterans during their transition back into civilian life?
2: Yes, Dr. Dowling, and thank you, Lance, for that information. First step is to acquire knowledge of the population and establish those cultural competencies through education and training, such as the Misney's Veterans Matter Initiative. Before we get into that, I just want a brief overview of some of the demographics in New York State to be more culturally competent to be able to treat these members coming back. New York State ranks fifth in the nation for veteran population. Most veterans in New York State do not receive VA health care. Veterans in New York State are predominantly male, and half of veterans in New York State are age 65 or older. The Operation Enduring Freedom Iraqi Freedom and New Dawn, female veterans, are the largest cohort of women in history involved in extensive combat operations. And Vietnam veterans are currently the largest of all era vets with significant health issues. Some of the unique needs of the Guard Reserve versus active duty, which we see a lot, as Lance mentioned, with the multiple deployments, they are followed by separation from military culture structure and support, so they're isolated and not accessing care. While they bring strength of the civilian acquired skills, they are also disadvantaged when it comes to access to military sort infrastructure. Therefore, not all Guard and Reserve units or Guard and are close to an active duty base, nor do all the service members live in the local area. Why is this important to note? Service members and veterans of the reserve units traditionally have their own private insurance from their civilian employer, therefore accessing health care in the community, not the VA. Some of the issues in the veteran population, PTSD and TBI in the post 9-11 veteran population are the signature wounds of combat operations. Chronic pain can lead to abuse of prescription painkillers, treat drugs, opioids, alcoholism and other substance use disorders. Veterans are unwilling to admit they have a problem as not to show perceived weakness. Suicide risk in this population? About 70% of veterans who took their own lives were not regular users of VA services, hence they are accessing civilian and private mental and medical health care. The problem is particularly worrisome among female veterans who saw their suicide rates rise more than 85% over that time, compared to about 40% of civilian women. Women that have served in the military are significantly less likely to disclose their veteran status. And roughly 65% of all veteran suicides in 2014 were individuals 50 years and older. There is no single type of veteran and not all veterans are at equivalent risk for suicide. So where are those resources to help you provide culturally competent and quality healthcare services? Again, the Misney Veterans Matter initiative. We also have SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, integrated care service. The SAMHSA initiative for integrated health solutions developed a guide for primary and behavioral health care professionals serving veterans and their families. All these resources and more are available on their website, www.integration.samhsa.gov. They also have a community provider toolkit specifically for providers outside the VA. The website provides an array of resources to assist providers who treat veterans and their families. It includes information on understanding military culture and experience, connecting with your local VA, and tools for working with a variety of mental health conditions. They also have the Helping Veterans and Their Families, a resource for safety net providers to learn how to help veterans transition to civilian careers, provide referral for VA facilities, and contract with VA medical centers. You will also find another fact sheet on the SAMHSA website for service members, veterans, and their families. Additional community resources will be discussed during our Veterans Matter webinars, and you can find out more on those. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Marcel. Can you point out some of the highlights of the Joseph P. Dwyer Peer-to-Peer Program?
2: Certainly. The Dwyer Project is all about veterans serving veterans through trained peers. The New York State Senate funds 23 counties in the state of New York for Dwyer Project. Research has shown that veterans are more likely to respond more favorably to another veteran rather than others who have not have a shared experience. Through the collaborative efforts of our community partners, the Dwyer Project serves veterans, service members, and their families with post-transitional service issues, including PTSD and traumatic brain injury. However, a diagnosis is not required for participation. We provide weekly peer groups as well as offer one-on-one peer engagement and host social events, which are always free of charge. Our trained veteran peer mentors have served in various branches of the armed forces and understand the reintegration needs of those who have been in the military, no matter era or branch. It's important to point out that the Dwyer Project accepts veterans regardless of discharge status. All groups are confidential and anonymous in a safe, trusting environment, free of judgment. Impact on Dwyer Project has minimized hospitalization, sustained families, secured gainful employment, prevented homelessness, promoted daily health and wellness, and educated the civilian community as to the needs of our veterans and their families. Loss of identity outside the uniform of the community and lack of understanding with civilians that have not served is a large part of the mistrust they have with healthcare providers. As a career airman, I recently retired. I realized that I lost my identity the day I shelved my uniform. Lance shared his perspective as an Army officer as well as to the identity crisis that we sometimes follow after leaving service. Through the Dwyer Project, we build trusting relationships and help veterans find their new identity. By providing opportunities to connect them with other veterans that have successfully navigated the system, we give them renewed hope and empower them to pursue healthy and rich lives. Dwyer Project focuses on creating a strong network of service partners in the community to complement VA healthcare and or sometimes as an alternative to those services. We recognize many veterans in our program do not have access to the VA as a result of bad papers. That is discharge that is other than honorable or below. Many of those veterans experienced a traumatic event while serving that reduced their ability to cope in stressful situations and was the catalyst to that discharge proceeding. This can create a stigma for veterans by feeling inadequate and let down by their battle buddies. Dwyer peers work with them by modeling healthy coping skills and connecting veterans with services such as yours that may not have sought out. By saying, I've been there and can help you, we assist them to overcome the negative beliefs put on by themselves and create a pathway to hope and healing to accomplish their success. Thank you.
0: Marcel, can you tell us a little bit about who Joseph P. Dwyer was?
2: Certainly, Dr. Dowling. Joseph Dwyer was a combat medic who was inspired to serve in the military at 9-11. Joe Dwyer was a gentleman that wanted to join the service to save lives and not take lives. If you've ever seen that iconic picture of the warrior with his weapon slung behind his back, carrying a young Iraqi child from a firefight, that was Joe Dwyer. It was a signature picture that was literally shot around the world. And iconically, it symbolized where we were in the war. Joe Dwyer, whom I had never met, that I've met through his family and his stories, was inspired to join the military because he wanted to help people. After multiple deployments coming back, he struggled openly with post-traumatic stress. Not having anybody else that he could really share his story with and did not have somebody that had that lived experience, he had real trouble trying to cope with life. Unfortunately, Joe was self-medicating and accidentally overdosed and died. Moving forward, his family, recognizing that there were many, many veterans out there that were struggling with PTSD and some that had suicidal ideation, wanted to help through peers that could understand what those experiences were. So now we have the Joseph P. Dwyer Veterans Peer Support Project in New York State with 23 counties that are helping veterans, and we are living the dream of the Dwyer family of why Joe lived and not how he died.
0: Lance, can you share a few pointers for things a physician can keep in mind so that we can forge a better alliance with a
1: veteran? Well, thank you, Dr. Dowling, for that question. And the first thing I'll mention is is certainly to highlight something that Marcel mentioned, which is that often there's no better tool for getting through to a veteran than another veteran. So much that has taken place since the Vietnam War, as far as learning how to better deal with veterans with PTSD, a lot of it has been self-help by the veteran community. Certainly, Marcel will talk in the seminars about things like uh, VA's Vet Center, which was an initiative entirely driven by Vietnam veterans who were no longer trustful of the type of treatment they were receiving at the hands of the VA. So that's number one. Number two, as far as forging an alliance with a veteran patient, it's so built into military culture, really ever since the American military was formed back around the time of the Revolutionary War, that American service members don't only want to know what you want them to do, but why you want them to do it. And in today's military doctrine, that is referred to as task and purpose. And so often upon leaving the military... They lose their sense of purpose. When in fact, at this point where they're seeking help, that their mission is to heal. And I think putting it like that to a service member, it means something else. You need to heal for the purpose of what that person lives for. You need to heal so you can see to your family. You need to heal so that you can get out there and take care of your fellow veterans. You need to heal. So framing things in a context of task and purpose is probably the most important thing that comes to me as far as to really helping the veteran patient forge a better alliance with his provider. Other things, things like appreciating the cultural differences that I brought up earlier, when they're speaking in that military jargon and military language, the provider might understand some of it, but you need to be very careful That you don't act as though you understand it all completely, or all of a sudden you will be deluged by that military jargon. If you don't understand, ask for clarification. If you don't understand, ask them to rephrase it in another way. Because there's a lot they're trying to get across, and that language barrier and that cultural barrier may be larger than it may initially appear.
0: Thank you, Lance. Those are some excellent points for physicians to keep in mind. In my practice, I've been privileged to learn, in addition, that when a military service member or a veteran sees that the physician is listening, cares, understands, and can help them formulate a plan to carry out that mission of healing, as you so well put it, then they often are the best patients to work with. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Lance and Marcel, for sharing these important thoughts with us today. You've been an invaluable resource, both of you, for the Veterans Mental Health Training Initiative that Misney has been working on the last few years. Thank you for listening to this podcast on military culture. If you'd like more information about any of the topics discussed here or any of the resources mentioned, please go to MISNI's CME website at https://cme.misny.org backslash backslash and look under resources. You can also view all of the veteran's matters webinars that are archived at the CME website, including one on military culture. These programs provide each participant with one free CME credit.